Welcome to Required Listening. I'm your host, Scott Goldman, Executive Director of the Grammy Museum. Each week in the Clive Davis Theater, I have the chance to speak with artists from across the musical spectrum about their careers, their inspirations, and their creative process. Now, with Required Listening, I'm excited to share these interviews with you. In today's episode, my conversation with Tony Award-winning singer, actor, songwriter, and playwright, Billy Porter Jr. He first came to prominence in the first revival of Grease, appeared in films, and ultimately won a Tony Award for originating the incredible role of Lola in Kinky Boots. But it's his passion for his craft, his commitment to his artistry, that is absolutely palpable. You can hear that commitment when he talks about how theater plucked him from the darkness, how it literally saved his life. You'll also hear his unique thought process about himself as an artist and what owning the leader really means to him. Finally, he makes the key discovery that opens the door to the rest of his career. So let's go to the Clive Davis Theater and listen to my conversation with Billy Porter Jr. What's happening, y'all? I want to start by talking about the record, and then we can kind of roll the videotape back. This is a fantastic project, and I'm wondering for you, what was the genesis of this? When did this idea start to percolate? Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, I'm obsessed with theater. I'm obsessed with those older songs, you know, just the way that they're written. I'm a believer in understanding where you come from, understanding what the rules are so you can Mm -hmm. break them. You know, so, and you know that you're breaking them and it's a choice and not just by accident. Mm -hmm. The songwriters who I am in love with, you know, one of them was Stephen Sondheim from the theater. And, you know, I was sort of miffed that they didn't cast black people in those shows. But I still love the music, you know. And so I had this idea, this crazy idea to, like, do different arrangements of the music you know, make them black, black them up. <laughs> um, and Susie Deeds, who's a theater producer. Yes. Um, she sort of produced the show. Uh-huh. And we actually put it up. And it was Stephen Sondheim's music done in, like, R&B and soul and gospel and yeah. rap and hip-hop styles. Yeah. And so we did that. It was a great success. And Reprise Theater Company, which she ran for a while, yes. was out here, and they were doing a Richard Rogers season. And she said, "Oh, you should, you should do the same treatment to Richard Rogers music that you did with, like it could be a thing." And they were doing a concert, and they said, "Just do a concert of it, and, like see what happens." And so Ren Brown at the Nate Holton Theater, you know, in the black area of town, hosted it <laughs> for us. <laughs> And it was a great success. So fast forward, that was back in 2009. Mm. Fast forward, you know, my patrons of the arts, Susie Deeds and Lenny Beer, her husband, who's in the music business. Yes. Now he... I've, I've, heard, I've heard of, I've heard yes, of him. Yes. So he got a deal on Sony and he said, oh, I want to sign you and you should make a record and you should do that Richard Rogers thing. And that's how it happened. Yep. And that's sort of, that, that was the impulse. And we also learned, too that when people know the song, the deconstruction of the arrangement becomes that much more 
amazing to them mm -hmm. because they know mm -hmm. where it came from. Sure. And so I think with Richard Rodgers' music, it's been great because, um, you know, that was the pop music of its day. You know, that was the golden age pop music. And everybody on the planet knows a Richard Rodgers song, even if you don't know that you know one. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so, you know, Wash That Man Right Out of My Hair was a shampoo commercial. You know, everybody knows... My Funny Valentine, sure. at it's, least. It's, it's like certain kinds of music are just in, it be, they become the part of your DNA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so the music being in our DNA has allowed for the project to resonate, I think. Sure, um, sure. In a really great way. But you've always kind of made this connection between Broadway and soul music. And I'm wondering, why does Broadway music and soul music work so well together for you? I think it is my journey to it. I grew up singing in the church, mm -hmm. uh, singing gospel music, singing um, R&B and soul music. And, you know, the childhood wasn't so lovely. I was looking for stuff to sort of just, like, occupy my time, get mm -hmm. me out. Like, you know, what was it? And in the sixth grade, I was introduced to theater. Being on stage in a theatrical production and going to a Pentecostal church are kind of the same thing. <laughs> Pentecostal church service on Sunday morning is theater of the highest order. <laughs> so it just worked for me. For uh -huh. whatever reason, it worked. Yeah. But I found inside of the infrastructure of theater and commercial theater that the two worlds were very often opposite. Hmm. Um, and didn't really come together. And I just didn't feel like that was right. I didn't feel yeah. like it was okay because here I am standing here. You know, I am this person from this world who loves all of this stuff. And so why can't they come together? Yeah. Um, I didn't know that it was a life's mission at the time, but mm -hmm. now all these years later, it's like I've been doing it since then. Yeah. You know, theater saved my life. How you so? know, it saved how, my how, life. How, how so? It plucked me out of the darkness. You know, it plucked mm. me out of what could have been my demise. It could have destroyed me. You know, I could have been a statistic. Mm. I was set up to be a statistic. When you look at it on paper, I was supposed to be a statistic. And it was theater that saved that. Mm. So in order to honor that... For myself, there's never any going away from it. Mm. Yeah. And you mentioned this, you know, a little bit that Richard Rodgers and his music was pop music of the day. Mm. Is it important for you to remind people that Broadway music isn't just something that a started with the Lion King? Right. By the way, no disrespect to the Lion King. <laughs> Um, that there is a long history and that there was a time where this was the preeminent yeah. music in this country. Absolutely. It was the pop music. Everybody knew it. And I just feel like, I mean, recently it's opened up. It's cracked open. Yeah. But when I started in the business, you know, back in the 80s, it was like, you know, to say that you were a theater artist was the kiss of death. Because oh. in the record business, you know, I yeah. had a deal. I had a record yeah. deal in the 90s on A&M Records. And I was instructed to not talk about the three Broadway shows that I was in. You know, they really? would rather I 
just come out of nowhere. It was very difficult, and 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 I feel like, you know, we've always been here. I know Hamilton has, mm -hmm. you know, smashed through the glass ceiling, but the rest of us have actually been here working in the trenches for the last <laughs> for thirty time. years, yeah. and that's no disrespect to Hamilton. You know, it's like, yeah. it's but but we've been doing it. Yeah, I've been yeah. standing here doing it. We've been standing here doing it. Many of us have been standing here doing it for decades. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm thrilled that. Now, people are listening in a different way. I also think it's the internet. You know, I also think it's really interesting because the internet has brought all of the theater geeks together mm. and swirled them up, and now it's popular yeah. again. Yeah. Because there are just as many of us as there are in every other genre. And connecting them in ways that perhaps them. weren't necessarily available yeah. before. You, you know, with this project, you take on a little bit of a different role in that, you know, the, it's Billy Porter Presents. You are the producer and the curator yes. of this. You're not necessarily on every track. Mm -hmm. Why take that on? Why not just do Billy Porter Sings the Soul of Richard Rogers and make it your project? Well, first of all, I have the most talented friends on the planet. And... I love working with talent. I love working with my friends. I, I've always been that person. Mm. I've always done that. Yeah. So it sort of seems second nature to me to do something like this. But I also, you know, in terms of my space and my place in the industry and in the business and in the world as, as a creative person, I began to understand a number of years ago that the ideas that I have, the vision that I have, everybody doesn't have that. You know, because I'm surrounded with so many talented people in my life, you just sort of assume that everybody, everybody has a Tony. <laughs> everybody I know has a Tony. I, I can assure you. But that's you, not I common. I don't have That's one. not normal. It's not common. And <laughs> I, I have ideas in my head and in my brain, and I never, you know, I'm the, I always say I'm the last of a generation of people who we're taught to be brilliant interpreters of other people's material mm. as an actor, mm. as a, you know, like you went to drama school and you learned how to do the classics and the Shakespeare and the Chekhov and the yeah. da-da-da, and you learned how to sing the classics. Yeah. Uh, Rogers and Hart, Rogers mm -hmm. and Hammerson. You like you, if, if the idea of creating it for yourself wasn't already instinctively in you, it wasn't something that people sort of encouraged. Mm. The internet has encouraged a whole generation of do-it-yourselfers for better or for worse. Uh, sometimes you should and sometimes you shouldn't. But yes. with that said, you know, for me, the way that I entered the business, the way that I entered the theater industry, I had a very special, specific kind of voice mm. when I started in the business. Mm -hmm. And I got to New York. I played that trump card. You know, it was a high, high, high gospel, like blow the roof off the joint voice. And... You know, I got work and I got work, but after a number of years, I realized it was pigeonholing me into um, a space that I felt uncomfortable. You know, it was like, you want me to come and stop your show, but when it's time to tell my story, you're not interested. Yeah. And so for me, I had to make the decision that that was no longer okay. Hmm. And when I made that decision and started demanding a different kind of... Um, respect from the people who could give you work, the work dried up. And I was left with no work. Yeah. And 
it was the best thing that could have happened to me mm. because it made me go deeper and it made me ask different questions of myself and challenge myself in different ways and become the person who's standing before you. Well, and you said something fascinating about this, and I'm going to quote you because I, I love this. You've talked about, and this is the quote, owning the leader in me. Yes. Tell me what that means. What does owning the leader mean to you? It's interesting because I've always felt like a leader, but, you know, there was this part of me coming from the church the idea of you can't be braggadocious, you know, it's a gift. And so therefore you need to be humble. Um, And that's all good. But the humility of it, I think for me, it reached a ceiling. Hmm. And I had to go, you know what? I actually know what I'm doing. And I actually need to be out in the front doing that. So I'm going to honor that. I'm going to own that. I'm going to have faith in that. I'm going to step out on faith, and I'm going to do it. Tell me about choosing the material. Tell me about the repertoire. Because I'm I'm wondering, was it a case of, okay, I got the repertoire, now I'm going to find the artists? Or is it more a case of, hmm, I got these artists, what's right? Well, it it was both. When we did the concert, the idea and the concept was classic to the contemporary. Mm -hmm. Broadway and Soul, which is my brand, you know, we did a lot of arrangements starting from jazz and all the way up to like hip hop and rap and gospel and all of that. And when we were putting this album together, I went back and started listening to the concert and I thought, yeah, I need one thing. And the thing that I need and the thing that hasn't been in the market before is to take this material and do these R&B soul gospel mm-hmm. treatment, contemporary gospel treatments yeah. of them because that hasn't been done. So that became the focus. So I knew that. So I knew whatever songs we choose from this group of songs that we already have arrangements for, we're going to have to flip the arrangements a bit and make them all sonically sound the same. Mm-hmm. And I want them to sound urban and contemporary and relevant and present today. So we knew that. Then the artists sort of fell into place. They kind of found themselves. It's like, let us see, uh, you know, she was in the concert in 2009. Right. So I said, well, what do you want to do? Of the four songs that she sang, which one would you want? Bewitched. Okay, you got that. Done. So, you know, the, so that sort of happened yeah. like that. Brandon Victor Dixon and Josh Henry, who I was in Shuffle Along with last season, You know, they have this really interesting, fun kind of rivalry in the business where they're always up for the same parts. They're always playing the same parts. They're both playing Aaron Burr right now in separate companies of Hamilton. And then there's this, going back to Sondheim, there's this song in Into the Woods called Agony where the princes sort of vie for the affection of Mm -hmm. a person. I thought, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to do like an urban version of that Sentiment yeah, I mean they they're with they're, the Richard Rogers song, yeah. which is why it goes into that like R and B. Yeah, there's a whole sing off, you know, sing off thing at the end going on. You know, because they're vying for each other's love. Cynthia Arrivo, it's like she has to 
Yeah. She I, has to say that. And, yeah, and, and, I have to stop, <laughs> and I have to stop you there because, um, I, you know, I saw an interview with her speaking specifically about you in this project. And this, this has to be remarkable. And I don't know if she said this to you, but she said in this interview, I trust Billy implicitly. I trust him, you know, with the song choice. I trust him with, you know, kind of my artistic role in this. What does that kind of trust from a fellow artist mean to you? You know, I'm only now beginning to be able to take it in. Like I said before, it's like I'm such a worker and I, and I have blinders on all the time. And so I don't always feel it. But this project has helped me to feel mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. you know, working with India uh -huh. as well. It's like I'd met India. Um, India Ari. India Ari, um, who came to see Shuffle Along. She sort of came backstage looking for me. You know, she has been a healer. Her music has healed me, has healed my soul for decades. You know, so to have her standing in front of me, I was like, okay, well, we need to work together. What's your number? And I had no idea. This is going back to that idea of yeah. how the songs come together. Yeah. I had no idea that she was going to be on this record. And then the election happened. Literally, the day after the election happened, I thought, carefully taught, India Irie. And I picked up the phone and called her. And it was interesting to me because, speaking of how does it feel, I brought her into the studio with every intention that it was going to be a solo. We worked on the arrangement. We sent it to her. Everything was cool. I walked into the studio. I said, okay, so what, you know, how do you like to work? Do you like to run it all the way down? Do you like to yeah. line by line? Do you like phrase by phrase? And she said, I thought I was singing this with you. That's <laughs> the way I'm, and I, and it just took my breath away because I didn't, it was never even a, like, I, I wanted the space for her yeah. to be able to speak and she made it a duet. Yeah. And that's astonishing. There were things that producers can do in the course of making records. They can shape the sound. They can shape songs. They can be the psychologist <laughs> for, for, yes. for the artist. And I'm wondering, in the process of doing this with so many different artists, did you play that role? Were you the sounding board in terms of how should we approach this Absolutely. material? Absolutely. I, I, you know, I always love speaking to the artist and hearing what it is that's in their heart. You know, the specificity of a person's voice, of a person's style. Mm. I've always been able to understand what that is, and I only, only, only want to make sure that we're lifting the artist up to be the mm. best version Hmm. of themselves that they can be. Hmm. That's what a producer does. Yeah. That's what a creative leader does. And it's about releasing my own ego. Yeah, because it's not about like you. It, it's not about me. I understand that. You know, a long time ago, you know, it, the transition of intention, you know, going from the naive idea that superstardom was what I wanted, you know, because superstardom would get me out. You know, superstardom would make my mommy love me even though I was gay. You know, like superstardom would solve all of those problems mm -hmm. that I thought I had. And I realized it's not about that at all. I was watching Oprah one day, as I am wont to do. Um, 
And she was on there with, with Maya Angelou and Ilanya Van Sant. And they were talking about, um, you know, I, I, I got to get my spiritual stuff. And they were talking about service. Mm -hmm. You know, like intention and service. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is that you do for a living, service. Like, what does that mean? And so I began to ask myself that question. Hmm. How can I be of service in an industry that, um, how can I be of service to something other than my own ego and my own bank account in an industry that is inherently narcissistic? And that journey began. And when that intention changed, my life completely turned around. Hmm. And now everything I do, you know, there's some connection it's like kinky boots never would have happened. Kinky boots is service. You know, you go to see that show, that's of service. All those little gay boys who don't feel like they have a place, mm. they stop me on the street every day. You saved my life. You changed my life. I was somewhere the other day, this 16-year-old boy was like, can I give you a hug? You know, it's like that is more important to me than any accolade or you know, check. Sure. You've got um, uh, Leslie Odom Jr.'s on, yeah. on this record. And I was interested to learn he was a student of yours. Yes, he was. And, and, and Patina Miller as well. Uh, on the, on the and, and I'm wondering, what did you see in him as a student? I saw a person who was individual, mm -hmm. just like I was individual, who was special, just like I was special. And was still made to believe that who they were wouldn't work because nobody had seen it before. Mm. And it's like, we have to understand that just because it hasn't been seen before doesn't mean that it's not valid. So for me, it was about helping these younger people hold on to what specifically makes them them. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like the sound of the voice. Mm. You know, that's not a sound that's usually associated with theater. Mm. You know, for me, I was put in his life to say, keep that sound. Yeah, you Don't change that sound. You, you, you've called him, I think, a modern-day crooner. Yes, he is. He is in the sense that, you know, like a Nat King Cole, you know, yes. something I can never do. Like, I listen to him and I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> that's not what I do. I'm a screamer. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's about us all owning who we are and yeah. loving that mm. and not letting anybody take that away. Yeah. You also have, and I believe she might be here tonight, um, you've got Lettuce. Yes. On, Is on... she here? You here? I, I heard something. Where, Lettuce where are here. It's a terrific track, and you've talked about her in particular. Please don't take this the wrong way. This is his quote. Raw but focused. Yes. You know, listen. I don't like sloppy singing. I don't like off-pitch singing. I don't like it being blamed on being raw. It's raw emotion, so it's okay that you ain't on pitch. I'm not that person. I don't like that. You know, because I believe that you can be raw and still be on pitch. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I yeah. believe that you can be raw and not fall out of your riffs. 
I believe you can do that. That's what she is. You know, that's what I meant by that. Yeah. You yeah. know, because we get into this space in this world where we give people passes for just not being good. It's huh. not good singing. Huh. You know, it's like you get in a line and you win an award, you win a reality television contest, and you don't have any craft. You can't sustain it. You know, y'all want to talk shit on theater people. I do it eight times a week. In heels. Eight times a week. That's what I believe in, though. Yeah. Yeah. That's my thing. Yeah. You know, and that's what I meant when I said that yeah. about yeah. her. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrific track, by the way. So she does the song Bewitched. Yes, um, Bewitched, uh, and, Bothered, and Bewildered. Uh, yes, and there's a young man on the track who's actually here with us as well, Zaire Park. Yes. And I'm wondering, how were you introduced to Okay, Zaire? so I have to tell the story about putting the album together. So my writing partner, musical director for 14 years, James Samplaner, who's sitting over there... So we originally did the concert back in 2009, the arrangements yeah. together. Yeah. So when we started working on this record, and I was like, well, I want it to be more hip hop oriented. You know, like I want to bring like an edgier side and and I looked at the both of us and I was like, okay, we can take it to a certain level, but like we need something else. We need like a ringer. And this guy who I had known back in the 90s, when I had my first deal, hip-hop, R&B, soul, rap producer popped into my head. It's just, it's like, it's divine when it happens like that. Mm -hmm. Popped into my head. Hadn't spoken to him in 10 years. And I looked on my phone, and there were like 17 numbers. And I like did this and just pressed one. And he picked up the phone. And that's Michael Sandlofer, who's sitting over there. Yeah. So the trifecta of us sort of is what brought this album together. Mm -hmm. And Zaire Park, he's, he's his artist. He produces people, so he's sure. his artist. And we were, you know, I was trying to get some of the Hamiltonians in there to rap with me, but, you know, they got TV shows and movie gigs and shit <laughs> and stopped returning my telephone calls. So I said, well, I'm not going to be held hostage. I got some other bitches <laughs> who I can pull out. It's all right. We all got gigs. <laughs> we got some other rappers. <laughs> but he brings a particular energy that I think is yeah. per perfect for this Yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, to spit the rhymes, as they call it. Am I saying that right? You know, because I've missed the whole rap thing. <laughs> um, You know, it was another, it was yet another group of people who didn't like me. You know, kill the police and kill the faggots. So I'm not spending money on that. I got to save myself. So I missed a movement as a result of that. And I feel gypped, you know, because I meet people like Zaire and I go, wow, it's the artistry in it. The yeah. wordsmithness, yeah. craft of it is just... Mind-blowing. Yeah. It's mind-blowing to me. And I'm glad now that we live in a different space, you know, in the world where I can now, you know, dive into that, go mm -hmm. back and dive into the stuff that wasn't obliterating me as a human being. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm really excited about that. Yeah. And that's what Zaire brings. Yeah. And he's so young and spry. And <laughs> 
You know, the, I feel like Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the world changed yeah. while you were making this record. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. And the election happened. And I'm wondering if the record changed for you in the process of the world happening around it. I'm going to tell you how the record changed. <laughs> it happened. And, you know, I'm a really political person. I've always been political. You know, being black and being gay and... You know, I came out during the, in 1985, during the AIDS crisis, we had to go directly to the front lines to fight for our lives. There was nothing else that you could do. I had no luxury of being on anybody's down low. We had to fight for our lives. So that was what it was. Mm -hmm. um, so with that, it was always political. You know, like Edelweiss, we know what Edelweiss is. You know, we know that the Von Trapp family sings that as the Nazis are trying to come in and mm -hmm. occupy, blah, blah, blah. You know, so that was there. Carefully Taught was not on the record. Hmm. That literally happened the day after. And then Wash That Man. You know, Wash That Man right out of my hair was, the original idea was to have Fantasia. And then the election happened, and Todrick Hall had been cast as Lola, in Kinky Boots, and I thought, Miss Lola is exactly the target for this administration. Metaphorically, that's the target. Right. That's one of the targets. Right. And we have to speak to them directly from that space. Mm. That's where Watch That Man yeah. came from. And, you know, Richard Rogers was speaking about issues yes. that are still relevant today. Yeah, and that was one of my things is that you know, they were pushing the envelope and they were having the conversations that were difficult to have. And, you know, we live in this, this shut up and sing environment because the idea is to squash critical thought, you know, and make people followers. And we as creative people have always been the ones who've been able to speak truth to power creatively. We've always been the ones who've been able to reach across the aisle when our politicians choose not to or can't, or whatever the situation is. And so that service, mm. you know, like mm. that makes me feel like getting up in the morning and I'm contributing to the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, so, so yeah, it literally changed the whole tone right. of the album and how I present it, actually, yeah. really. One of the great things I, I, I read that you said about this record, and it may have come kind of through the process of getting through the election, is you wanted to show the world how fierce Broadway is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, there's been this idea for years that Broadway is corny. You know, that Broadway can't hold up to traditional pop. We don't mm -hmm. sing that way. Y'all can't sing like that. Y'all can't, you know, and it's not true. Mm. As you can see on this record, it's mm -hmm. not true. Mm -hmm. Um, and and you chose Edelweiss yes. to close the record. Why did you want to sing that song? It's a con we we did a contemporary gospel arrangement of it, mm -hmm. and you know while the doctrines of the church, religion, which is man made, spirituality is divine. You know I had to leave that space too. Yeah, but what I haven't left is the music. 
separating the messenger from the ministry is something that I've been able to do and have had to do with gospel music because at my core, that's what fuels me. Yeah. So while it's not a traditional gospel song, it's a contemporary gospel take on that song. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that was what I had to do on the record. I had to make that statement mm. on the record. So we've got time for a couple of questions from the house here. So do we have a question or two? For, yes, sir, right here. Uh, this past weekend was the final AIDS Project Los Angeles stage benefits. I heard. I know that you participated in the past, so I was wondering how you got involved and if you have any uh, interesting anecdotes. I do have an interesting anecdote. The first one that I did was probably 1991, 92. I sang a Sondheim song, and Peter Matz was still alive. Peter Matz came over to my apartment. I had a piano in my apartment, and we sat down and did an arrangement of what can you lose and not a day goes by. I don't talk about that very often, but Peter Matz was in my house, huh. and we did an arrangement together. <laughs> and I was 22 years old. <laughs> in the back, way in the back. First of all, I love you. Thank you. You better be singing later, right? I'm singing, yes, that's the whole point. You see this outfit, you think I walk down the street in this outfit every day? I got an outfit for you bitches. <laughs> I love them because they needed to hear you. And my question for you is, what would you give to a singer who's, what would you tell them in terms of trying to find who they are? The only thing that you can be is the best version of yourself. You know, it's like I lived it. People tried to make me something else because who I am and what I represent made them uncomfortable. So the minute you stop caring about that, you find your voice. The minute you stop caring about other people's successes, you know, other people's successes are not your failure. You're in a race and you turn around to look at where the other people are, and you fall and everybody passes you up. Stay the course, mind your business, do you. The end, no matter how long it takes. You know what I mean? It's like, it took way longer than I ever thought it was gonna take. Trust me, you know. And last question, because it ties right in. You've talked about your career in terms of endurance. Yeah. And, and, you know, you said the race is not given to the swift nor the strong, but to the one who endures in the end. To the end. To the end. You know, I go back to Bonnie Raitt. You know, I remember her winning for I Can't Make You Love Me and mm -hmm. that album yep. that Nick, just kind of blew it, Nick of Time, yep. that blew up. And I wasn't even really in it in it at the time yeah you know but i remember sitting watching and going wait something just happened that's rare like this woman is old <laughs> she's not supposed to be doing this right you know what i mean like life was supposed to have had passed her by at this point you know i remember olympia dukakis 
you know, talking about that. Yeah. You know, when she was like, I'm 50-something years old, I got mm. an Oscar? And that's what I mean about intention changing. Mm. You want to be a star? That's bullshit. That's some young, naive bullshit. You want to be an artist? You want to be an artist who has something to say? Then you're never leaving. You're never stopping. You know, because it's not about the ego. It's about what's in here, and it's about what you were called to do. I have been called to do this on this earth, in this moment, right now. So whether people are listening or not, George C. Wolf, one of my mentors, mm -hmm. said you got to, you know, you can't wait for anybody to give you permission to practice your art. If you're an artist, you're going to be doing it all the time, whether people are listening or not. Well, we could not be more pleased to have had the chance to listen to you, not only tonight, but in your career to this point and this album, which is fantastic. Thank you. So thank first you, of all, you. thank you for taking the time to thank you for having have, me. have a little chat. I'm at the Grammy Museum, y'all. I'm thanking y'all. Shit. <laughs> Give it up for Billy Porter. It isn't often that you hear an artist talk about his transition of intention and turning toward the idea of service in his career and how keeping that sense of service to others is what ultimately changed his life and career. I would encourage you to seek out some Billy Porter music or check out the soundtrack to Kinky Boots and you'll get a great sense of this remarkable artist. So that's your required listening for today. And let's keep the conversation going. We're on all the social platforms at Grammy Museum. All the info about our activities, our exhibits, and our programs is at our website, grammymuseum.org. As always, props to the team that makes required listening happen every week. Jason James, Justin Joseph, Callie Weissman, Lynn Sheridan, Miranda Moore, Jim Canella, Jason Hogue, Chandler Mays, Nick Stumpf, Len Brown, and everyone at How Stuff Works. Until next time, I'm Scott Goldman. <laughs>